Hello, listeners. Welcome to the next session. An advice podcast for game masters who are seeking help with their next game session. I'm Adam Johns. And I'm Alyssa Johns. Game session. Game the game session. Should we should we play up? Should we do a different opening? Uh hello listeners. I'm Adam Johns. Oh, okay. I was thinking no, I like <laughs> Are you ready, kids? <laughs> no. No. I think I that's taken. <laughs> I think that one might be taken. What about Welcome to the podcast. I'm your littlest sister, um, Alyssa McElroy. <laughs> there you go. It's perfect. Don't change a thing. <laughs> yep. And sued. Yeah. And I'm your 40 under 40. <laughs> <laughs> Are you a tall drink? Is that what you're saying? No. Yeah. Woo! That's, that's, yeah. Like that's a exactly tall, right. tall glass of water. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, I do declare. <laughs> well, I was referring to the 30 under 30 list. It's a it's a published list of 30 people under 30 who are very accomplished. Gotcha. That makes but I'm not, way more sense. I'm now. not under 30, so I can't be on that list. <laughs> and <laughs> you know, me neither. On account of being old. Yeah. I don't think they do a 40 under 40 list. You know, they might. Yeah. They should. They should expand it. There's lots of there great people. There you go. I should be on that list. You should. Yeah. I, you know what? I'm going to write. I don't write, have much longer for it. <laughs> I'm going to write to my congressman. That's what a 40-year-old right. would say, right? I'm there not, you go. <laughs> I'm not 40 yet, so I don't know. Yeah. In any case, we have some people who would like our advice. Hey, I like that. That's most of what we do. That's what we do. So this next session help comes from Furious Cactus. Furious cactus. That sounds terrifying. Cactuses are already kind of terrifying. A furious cactus would be extra terrifying. I was thinking of the little cactus guy from uh, Final Fantasy. Oh, yeah. Um, Cactar? Is, is that, that his it? name? Oh, maybe. Maybe. There's also that like weird lizard character with the lantern. I don't remember from Final he, Fantasy. Was he was that hard. Final Fantasy. He was well. He was at least in either Final Fantasy X or Final Fantasy X. Because those are the only ones you've played. Yes, yeah. those are the ones I've played. <laughs> Definitely X two. That oh, okay. lizard guy. There you go. He hits you for a lot. Lizard guy. Furious cactus. <laughs> Furious cactus asks how to kill a god. Yeah. Um. Warning. If the nickname for your campaign is Boat Gang, please do not listen to this next question. Oh. Uh, you Boat Gang. Boat Gang. Stop it. Don't, don't listen. Don't listen. Skip ahead. Skip ahead. Come back. Come After back for the, the break. next section. Um, my players are on the path to kill a god, Umberly, and I'm looking for advice on how to handle it. They've actually teamed up with the campaign's big bad evil guy to do it, a warlock cultist avatar of Hadar. So they've got in-universe backup from a very eldritch horror source. I can't say I ever expected both parties to team up after all the mutual murder attempts, but they both genuinely want Umberly dead, and god-killing makes strange bedfellows. Mm. Any ideas on how to handle this? This just seems like a job that's too big for just a simple kill an overpowered stat block. Hmm. I like this because I've done this a few times. In- you- you campaigns. are a god killer. I'm a god killer. Call me Nietzsche. Um, Why? Because I don't get that reference. A, it's an existentialism reference. No, I don't get it. <laughs> it was a philosopher who said famously, "God is dead." Um, and there's a bunch of jokes where God then says, "Nietzsche is dead." Oh, you mean Nietzsche? <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, I maybe I'm pronouncing it wrong. Maybe I'm listening to it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, killing a god. 
That's so exciting. Uh, <laughs> let's see. I've done this a few different ways. One one possibility that I've always enjoyed is, um, you know, a special weapon or a special item that basically allows you to pierce a god's otherwise invulnerability. That's very Thanos from yeah. Marvel. Um, uh, in Greek mythology, and I'm pretty sure I learned this from the TV show Hercules. And movie? Uh, no, the original TV show with... Uh, uh, that Xena Warrior Princess <gasps> spun off of, oh. um, where they have to kill a god and they use hind's blood. A hind is a half-human, half-deer creature uh, that exists in Greek, Greek mythology. And um, apparently in that show, and I don't know whether or not this is also true in Greek mythology, perhaps it is, uh, hind's blood coated on a weapon can pierce a god's vulnerability, invulnerability and and therefore deal damage or potentially kill a god, um, which is a fun concept. And then you make hinds, you know, very difficult to, to acquire, very difficult to find. Or very much like um, Harry Potter, like killing an innocent creature. Right, is a, is a kind of horrible, horrible act. Um, and you can kind of go in that direction. And that's that's kind of fun and has, has this sort of basis in lore a little bit, which is a, a fun bit to add into your campaign. So that's that's always kind of a good option, something like that. Now, from Hercules, the Disney movie, to how do you kill a god, you turn immortal. Yeah. Maybe there's a way they can turn this god mortal. That's a possibility. One of the ways that I did this in a campaign that you can actually listen to, um, which is the Psychology in Seattle podcast, where the players end up facing off against not the god itself, but a um, uh, sort of summoned avatar of a god um, where they fight Groomsh. And one of the things that I did was to provide the players with effectively a sort of godlike power themselves in order to make it a fair matchup because they had gotten a, a patron. They basically got somebody to help them with it. I'm not going to spoil any of the things. If you want to go back and listen to the D&D Psychology in Seattle podcast, um, you can uh, then kind of even the matchup. And then your players are empowered by their own godlike powers. And um, they did things to help weaken the godlike powers from the other side. And so there was a whole campaign where they had to kind of spend time you know, weakening the worshiping uh, and the and the uh, prayer and things like that that were happening, which I always presumed gave gods their power back, um, is is sort of how that exchange works. So gods that have a lot of worshipers, that have a lot of followers, also gain a lot of power from that worship and yeah. from that uh, sort of thought process, which so, is a little bit sort of American gods kind of. Yeah. So destroy concept. their churches, destroy their temples, or start even, that way. Even better, start a campaign that tarnishes their good name. Uh, start getting people to worship wrong. Get start getting people to to turn away from their worship. Yeah. Um, uh, one thing to to you know go in and vandalize those places, but it's a whole. But that may not actually stop worship, right? Um, you come in and vandalize my God's church, and maybe I'm I'm even more faithful now. Uh, but instead, to have to like go in and and infiltrate those places and sort of ruin their their perception of that God in order to weaken them, I would definitely say drag it out because killing a God um, should feel impossible. Yeah, this should feel like a huge momentous thing to do. 
in your world. And it can be achieved, but it has to be these progressively harder and harder tasks. And then you will feel, they will feel so successful when they actually do it. There's um, uh, one way to, to add to add to that is um, in order to create the perception of an impossible task, it can be helpful to say to even attempt this task, you need to complete these other several also impossible tasks. Exactly. To, to sort of demonstrate just how impossible this task is. You want to kill a god, you have to like capture sunlight in a sword. Like, how do you even do that? That is that is an impossible task. Like, no, no, no. You're not. It's not a crystal. You literally have to contain sunlight into a sword or something along those lines. Something something conceptual that you don't even know where to start from when you're first given the mission, and then you have to sort of piecemeal together the many pieces that are uh, pursue this impossible task. And that is just one of the several impossible tasks necessary in order to actually do this this thing that you want. Yeah, it's interesting. I just looked it up. Hadar is also known as the dark hunger. Yeah. So I like the idea that that because you have sort of a god's support. Yeah, you have an avatar of Hadar. So my thoughts is weaken this other god until Hadar can eat him or her. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting idea. I like I like that. Goes back to that Greek mythology of yeah of um, demigods and gods eating each other, basically um, trapping them inside them. And and it, and it opens up the the concept that like you can't kill a god, but you can weaken one god enough that another one can kill him. Um, there's also this concept of like, can you kill a god because their immortality maybe extends beyond, you know, specifically their long life. Um, if gods are created by concept and fed by faith, then when if a god dies but still has followers, still has faith, do they just come back? Right. Um, but this, your, your suggestion opens up the possibility of like Umberly will consume this god and all faith that all worshiping that goes to that god will go to that uh, Hadar will consume this god and that all faith, all worshiping to Umberly will go to power Hadar instead, which might be Hadar's like actual motivation in this is to become way more powerful um, through the act of consuming Umberly. Yeah, absolutely. Umberly is the evil sea goddess. So I, I would think that killing Umberly should change the world, should change the seas in mm-hmm. some regard. And maybe that's your key to killing Umberly is you have to poison the heart of the sea or something like that. It has to be, you have to meet her in a way that will weaken her to the point, but it should be tied into. Yeah. Tied the into seas. the sea somewhere. Somehow, somewhere. Yeah. Um, maybe there's something buried in, you know, the deepest trench in the sea, um, buried deep, deep down where no one else can get to it. Um, and that could be a, you know, a heart or, or something like that. Um, or a trinket, um, something important to the god. Um, Absolutely. I think that a could be crux. kind of a, a horcrux kind of thing. <laughs> um, also, uh, if she is the destructive nature of the sea, maybe after she is killed, the sea goes calm. Mm-hmm. There's no tides. There's no, like, mm. like thing this this has repercussions sure in ways that the players probably didn't think of 
Yeah. So um, also coming back to the Psychology in Seattle podcast, um, uh, at your suggestion, uh, the podcast actually starts with this campaign with the moon. Mm, right um and yep. and uh ghost pirates and ghost pirates and and it's basically like what are the unknown repercussions of cutting the goddess of the moon off from communication to the material plane which then causes the moon to disappear um and and we play around with that that exact idea like what other what other things does that then cause i love the concept of killing this uh, you know some some of the pieces of this are like how do you actually do it but there's also lots of campaign that could come out of what happens once you once you do, mm-hmm. um, which could be any number of bad things. It could be that Hadar turns on the players, um, who has no interest in in like actually. Um, now that you've helped me accomplish my goal, I don't have any interest in keeping you around. And in fact, now that you know how to kill a god, I need to get rid of you, right? Um, so that you don't turn that knowledge against me. And so you also have the potential of like Hadar chasing the players to the end of the earth or imprisoning them or killing them or whatever the the case of, of that may be. And then you could have a whole campaign where you now have to restore Umberly to uh to to life because the consequences of killing her turned out to be way worse than you thought they were gonna be. Yeah, or trapping her yeah, or, or trapping whatever her, whatever that looks like. Um but from the concept of of killing a god, uh, I've I've always been a fan of of you have to weaken their their followers' faith in them, and uh, you have to have a weapon powerful enough to pierce a god. So it's a fetch quest to get a thing to lead you to the weapon or pieces of the weapon mm-hmm. that you then need to forge in some sort of divine light, and you need to have your own defenses strong enough to withstand the god's might. Meanwhile, you're getting rid of followers or t- making it harder for them to worship, to bolster the god. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's kind of the direction. That's sort of much, a much more broad perspective than like, you know, here's your next combat or whatever. Um, but I think that's way more interesting. And obviously, given the, the support here, um, you know, the weapon could be a weapon of Hadar, um, of some kind, or you could go a lot of the, um, Forgotten Realms gods have like counter gods. They have like a, uh, you know, a God that is their, their greatest enemy or their, their greatest rival or something like that. And maybe the weapon that you get is whatever Umberly's greatest rival, uh, artifact or something, something along those lines. Uh, that could be the way in which you you can pierce through Umberly's defenses. That could be kind of fun. Yeah. Poseidon. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know who Umberly's. <laughs> who, who knows? You could just make it up. Also, one, one of, you know, one of the things that does come up from time to time when I talk to people about running, running RPG games is that they can sometimes feel a little too beholden to the to the forgotten realms or to the, you know, to the storylines that exist. And there's nothing bad with, with wanting to hold to that lore or wanting to, to stay tight to, you know, those stories and, and those characters. And there's also nothing bad with just making up your own stuff. It's okay in this case to, to say, Hey, there's other gods that exist that are not along that, among that list. And I created some extra backstory about Umberly and Umberly's, you know, favored, uh, 
counter god is a is an earth god because Umberly's of the sea, and so there's an earth one um, who's the Terra Monstra, um, <laughs> and that's that's the one that Umberly doesn't like, and they fight with each other, and now we need a big rock from them. Now, if you did want to, just a quick Google search, Umberly's apparently was strongly opposed to Saloon, whose stars <sighs> guided navigators at sea, Valker, who guided travelers safely home, Soon or Sune, whose beauty made her green with envy, and Shanunti for her dominion over land. There you go. Perfect. There's the land one. Yeah. <laughs> and all of these gods can team up against Umberlean. That's Maybe. a possibility. I have to convince a lot of people. Um, I might not do quite that much since you already have another god. An avatar of a god. Yeah, an avatar of a god's kind of kind of helping you out. Um, but uh, but getting an artifact from one of them or, you know, Hadar could be like what you really need here is you need the brooch of of Saloon to to defend yourself against the magics of of um, Umberly. And that's that could be like, a, you know, Hadar knows where that brooch is. You don't necessarily need to go have a conversation with Saloon. At some point, you get too many gods. It just becomes sort of a like, what are we even doing here? Why don't these gods just take care of this? Uh, which is always going to be a question that players are going to come up with at some point where they go, why are we the ones doing Why isn't Hadar coming coming over here and taking care of this? Hadar sent his avatar. That's as best as he can do. Right. Now, I've always had the rule that exists in most of my campaigns that part of the deal of the material plane is that the gods are not allowed to directly intervene in the material plane. Mm. Um, this is a rule that I created specifically to answer this question so that when players go... Why can't this god, who I'm literally having a conversation with, come over here and just take care of this thing themselves? And the answer is always because the rule that all the gods made amongst each other is that they are not allowed to directly impact or influence the material plane. They can only do it through followers, through uh, they can give you know a follower a little of their magic or or a, you know through through faith or things like that. But there's a, basically a set of rules that say they are not allowed to like, come down to the material plane and do anything. Because Which kind of, that. of goes against this whole idea of Umberly being the sea destruction because it sounds like she directly affects. Sure, and like that. I mean you know so this that that kind of like is a question of like what is direct and what is indirect. Yeah, where's the line? Yeah, you're not allowed to show up, but you can you know you are the god of the sea, so you can kind of do stuff with the sea. Maybe that's okay, um, but you you as the game master can can make some determination around what that looks like or doesn't look like. Um, but that may help answer some of those questions. Maybe the reason, if you want to actually fight Umberly, you're going to have to do it in a place other than the material plane because Umberly can't appear in the material plane as per the rules. And um, if you want to uh, hurt Umberly, maybe the items which could hurt her are in the material plane because she knows that other gods cannot get to them. Mm, yep, I like that one. Anyway. Well, Furious Cactus, there's some ideas for you. Yeah. Um, if you Maybe listen. Tame your fury. Uh, there's some good little bits um, in the end of the Psychology in Seattle podcast where I do a little bit of the avatar of a god fighting another avatar of a god fight. Um, and that can be a lot of fun when you finally do get to the point where you're fighting gods versus gods um, or, you know, weakened god versus buffed uh, people or whatever the case it's may be. It's very um, Legends of Korra. Yeah. 
Um, and I encourage you just like, that's a very exciting fight to have when you finally get there, especially if you've properly made a real campaign out of the, out of the process of just getting powerful enough to, to arrive at that moment. Yeah. Take your time. Yeah. Build it up. Very exciting. I I hope it goes well for your cactus. All right. Well, we're going to take a break. All righty. Let's take a break. Break. And we're back. Hey, we're back. Welcome back. I'm so excited to be back. So excited. Um, I've invited uh, our friend Ben Man Ginger here. Ben Man Ginger. Well, okay, he's not actually here. But Ben Man Ginger <laughs> submitted an Ask a GM question. Ooh, that's similar to being here. Yep, rules question. We need a <laughs> rules lawyer. A rules lawyer? Where are we going to find one of those? Uh, I'm looking at one. Oh. <laughs> it's it, you. Am I the rules lawyer? Oh, man, that's depressing. But of course you are. <laughs> I don't know them as well as you. You must be the you. You make the you make the determination. You are the rules judge. How about that? Sure, I'll take it. Okay, um, Ben Man Ginger says, uh, "Create or destroy water." Says that it can destroy fog, and cloud kill is described as fog. So, can it destroy that fog? I let it happen because it sounded super creative in the moment, and also my players were running out of ideas otherwise. But now looking at the spell of create or destroy water, it reads, quote-unquote, alternately, you destroy fog in a 30-foot cube within range. And Cloud Kill specifies that it is a, quote-unquote, 20-foot radius sphere of poisonous yellow-green fog. So... That being said, sure, I probably should have let a little bit of cloud kill remain because creator destroy water destroys a 30-foot cube, which is smaller than a 20-foot radius sphere. But otherwise, this sounds like it falls within rules as written to me. Um, create destroy water doesn't specify non-magic water or non-magic fog, but please correct me if I'm wrong. Thanks. I'd probably allow it. Um, as for rules as written on this, um, I would probably say that the rules of create and destroy water can only apply to water. That's what I was going to say. So the reasons for this are that your body is 70% water. I thought it was like 85. Well, it's a lot. It's a lot of percent water. (laughs) And if you allow for the possibility that create or destroy water can can destroy, say, bodies of water with other stuff in them, um, maybe even predominantly other stuff, but also water, then you also allow for the possibility that you can, say, destroy an entire body's worth of water. No, this is confusing. You said bodies of water. Yes. A body being, being a humanoid body. A human body, not a body of water like a lake. Correct. Um, so I, I think ultimately what I'd really be looking for is, is this, is this more or less pretty much water? Uh, I'd probably still allow, like, salt water. Um, and if my p- players wanted to get really nitpicky about this, I might I might have to come up with a specific rule as to what constitutes the kind of water they can, they can destroy and what constitutes the kind of water they can't destroy. But really my space that I'd be getting to is trying to really make it clear that you cannot use this spell to solve problems by itself that it isn't clearly designed to do. 
Um, I actually have, have had players attempt to use this spell very specifically to create water inside of somebody's lungs. Morbid. Right. With the uh, specific expectation that it is an open container because your mouth is open and therefore it is an open container that you are creating water in. Um, I make it very clear that, that you cannot do that. <laughs> um, that open container is being worn and carried. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, if you let them do that, then the evil guys can do that to you. Right. And oftentimes that's, that's sort of the argument back the other way is to say, um, you can do this or you can't do this, but if, if you allow for that, then someone else can do it back to you. Um, and if you can instantly kill somebody with a first level spell and pretty much anyone who breeds, then you're going to have a hard time making that argument back the other way. Now, personally, what I would have done, I think it's great that you let it happen and you can always say like, Hey, I let this happen this one time, all that jazz. But here's what I would have done. You do, um, destroy the cloud kill you destroy you take the water out of the cloud kill and the the cloud of fog poisonous fog is now reduced to a paste of poison it has now been reduced down much like a gravy Mm. it is now a sludge a slime you can't pass through it whatever size radius that was looks like it was maybe a 20 foot radius is now poison on the ground yeah although you can collect it and put it into a, a glass jar, maybe. Sure. That's kind of a fun and you thing. could maybe say that it's also toxic. Oh, absolutely. At, at that concentration, it's more than just poisonous. It's it will it will hurt you if you touch it. Yeah. Um, or you have now created the birth of a gelatinous poison cube. Ooh, that would be pretty fun, actually. Um, that's this you know combination of magics uh, creates a, a gelatinous cube made entirely. This is how they were made. This is it. <laughs> you do cloud kill and then you re- remove all the water from it. Um, and now it's a gelatinous cube. That'd be pretty fun. I like that idea a lot. Specifically, it is a 30 foot cube because that's how much water you destroyed. So you made a 30 foot cube. Maybe you were, it's a 10 by 10 because you had to condense it all together when oh, you destroyed yeah. the water. Absolutely. Um, but I, I like that. I like both those ideas. I also, I'm, I'd probably be okay with doing it every once in a while. You know, how often does cloud kill really come up in your campaigns uh, where you go, oh, this is yet another cloud kill or whatever. And the specific scenario of there is a cloud kill and somebody has created destroy water ready to go. Um, it feels like that happens rarely enough that I might just say, yeah, that's totally fine. How many other spells have fog? That you have to worry about being destroyed by creator, creator destroyed water, right? Isn't there a color fog, fog of war? There is. There's fog cloud, which I think really distinctly should be destroyed by creator destroyed water. There is control weather, which just creates regular fog. There's wind wall. Oh, no. Nope. Yeah, that's pretty much it. What am I thinking of? I think I'm thinking of color spray. I'm thinking of color spray. You're thinking of color spray. There's a druid grove, which can create fog as a part of that, but that's also just sort of regular fog. Cloud kill is the only, like, fog that is designed as an offensive weapon that I know of in the game. 
I mean, lots of them are, are there, there are several fogs that are like obscuring vision or things like that. Yeah, but this one is specific. This is the only one that harm. like does damage in, in its fog nature. Uh, and I think in all the time that I've played D&D, I've only used Cloud Kill like two or three times in total. So I don't know. I mean, if you're a game master who's using Cloud Kill a lot. But they're using it at least once. Sure. Um, <laughs> and if you think like, oh, man, I really like this spell. I want to use it a lot more often. Or I've got a campaign that really needs to like utilize this spell several times. Then I might do exactly what you suggested, which is to say, I allowed that to happen that first time. But just so you know, I... I thought about the rules or or I listened to this great podcast and um, the I, I'm, I can't let that happen for, for future references. It's not going to work. And you can listen to that great podcast as long as your campaign is not boat gang. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Well, if you've gotten to this part and you're in the boat gang. 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 The boat boat gang. If you're part of the boat gang, then, uh, well, you, we've skipped that question. Welcome so, back. Welcome back. Yeah, there you go. So I ultimately, you know, um, Ben Manginger, I think you made a great call, which is in the moment you said, this is a fun answer and a creative way to solve this problem. And I think you made a great call in in like letting that player feel really powerful and feel really creative in in solving a problem with a low level spell, which is a lot of fun. Um, If you're really concerned about it, you could totally always retcon it. Probably I wouldn't. It, uh, according to Raw, I probably wouldn't allow Creator Destroy Water to destroy Cloud Kill, but I don't think that it's a poor ruling on your part in order to to make that happen. I think it just makes for more fun of the game. Absolutely. Here, here, I agree. Let's move on to Quillian the Fey. All right. Quillian the Fey says, My players killed a fifth level spellcaster and the wizard recovered his spellbook. Would all the spells available to the NPC now be available for the wizard to learn with gold cost, or would you say only some of them? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Boy, this gets into an interesting area that I'm not entirely certain, which is how spell books work in 5th edition. Um, in old editions of D&D, uh, the spell book was definitely, that That was exactly something you could do. You could kill a wizard, steal their spellbook, and then take their spells from their spellbook and be like, I want to copy these spells into my own spellbook, and now they are available spells to me. And it took some amount of time, and that, I know some parts of that still exist in 5th edition. Yeah, it's like gold and time. Right. Um, I stopped keeping track of those things as a game master, mostly because I thought they were sort of boring uh, bookkeeping uh, which I didn't want to uh-huh. force my yep. Yeah, uh, which I didn't want to force my players to have to actually do all the time, um, and and largely they were kind of uninteresting to track. However, if you are a game master who is tracking that, then that can be a a, a really fun way to to say, oh, you've got these spells. Let's let's add them to your spellbook. Um, I would say yes, and the only exception to that I would say that you might have would be one-off scroll spells. And the intention behind if you have a scroll with a spell on it is that you can't, it doesn't actually contain the entire spell. Um, A scroll with a spell on it as opposed to a spell book that has the spell written down, the scroll with the spell on it contains a portion of the spell and the magic imbued into the scroll with the rest of the spell. Um, This allows somebody who doesn't know the spell to cast the spell anyway 
even if it if it might be outside of their or like domain or something along those lines. A wand that has charges of the spell ready to go. Right. I wouldn't allow you to, to then, you know, transfer that into your spell book. Um, but if you just had the spell book of another wizard, it is otherwise worthless because unless you know how to cast those spells um, and take the time to learn them, you can't do anything with that spell book anyway. Yeah. So the ability to copy it over into your own spell book seems like exactly the the fun thing that you get out of that out of that experience. Yeah. I would absolutely let them have it. Um, I should point out that the player's handbook um, does say under your spell book that the cost of both gold and time of copying spells into a wizard spell book represents the time taken to decode the other wizard's personal notation for their casting. So like this wizard wrote it on cursive. You don't oh, know man. how to read Leading cursive. cursive is such a, such a pain. <laughs> <laughs> um, for each level of the spell, the process takes two hours and costs 50 gold pieces. Each level of the spell. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, fifth level spell. That's going to take a while. Yeah. A lot of money. Once complete, the wizard has translated the spell into their own notation and recorded it in their spell book. Perfect. So I, I really like that idea that... Um, there's there's extra flavor to it, and if you found a, a you know fifth level spell that you would never have had had access to, yes, you can have it, but here's the cost, and then we'll talk about it over the next couple of sessions of you like in your free time, furiously trying to scribble, paying someone at the local library to help you out with the translation or whatever. Because mm-hmm. like what the, there's no like credit card spot in the book. You're not like ching fifty gold pieces <laughs> me, another level. Let me put them let me put them in the piggyback. <laughs> Piggy bank little little piggy slot. <laughs> the back of the piggy bank. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I I do like that. I like that a lot. Um, as just flavor as as opportunity for how are you going to record these things in? The, there's also I mean one of the real powers of wizards is to have a versatility of spells available to you. And even though you get spells for free when you level up, when you when you reach certain milestones in the game, etc. Um, you know, the game kind of gives you like, okay, now pick a few more spells. But it's very exciting as a wizard to be like, oh, I can now add this extra spell to my to my repertoire. And I, I, I might not memorize it every day, but I now have it as an option for days where, where I want to, where I want to change things around. Which is effectively how, you know, all the divine casters work anyway. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Thanks, Quillerin, Quill, Quill, Quillian Quick, the Fae. Quilly, Quillian. Quillian the Fae. Quillian. Yeah. Wow, a Fae. The Fae. The Fae. Just one. Just one. He's the Fae. He's the Fae. Or he's he's the Quillian that happens to be the Fae one. Oh, yeah. Versus oh, like yeah. As opposed Quillian. to the human Quillian. Yeah. That makes sense. Star-Lord. Yeah. Isn't his name really Quillian? Quill. Yeah, but is it short for Quillian? Uh, it might be. But he's not a human. Spoilers. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Adam. Yeah. Hey, Adam. Let's use that spell. Ba da ba ba ba. Use that spell. Hey. Thanks. Hey. Hey. Yeah. Hey, we're, we're we're gonna do a, a favorite spell of yours. Oh. Okay. It's, it's knock. Have oh. you ever heard of it? It is one of my favorite spells. Man, that's a that's a throwback spell. That's a that's a second edition spell right there. Yeah, I thought you'd like it. Yeah, it's a level two spell, casting time one, action range area of sixty feet, components V, which is just verbal. 
<laughs> Duration instantaneous. Choose an object that you can see within range. The object can be a door, a box, a chest, a set of manacles, a padlock, or another object that contains a mundane or magical means that prevents access. A target that is held shut by a mundane lock or that is stuck or barred becomes unlocked, unstuck, or unbarred. If the object has multiple locks, only one of them is unlocked. If you choose a target that is held shut with arcane lock, that spell is suppressed for 10 minutes, during each which time the target can be opened and shut normally. When you cast the spell, a loud knock, audible from as far away as 300 feet, emanates from the target object. This is from the Basic Rules, page 254. This is fun. Not I like knock. <laughs> Yeah, um, I've always liked this spell. This is this is right up there with like cool things I would do in my life if I was a wizard. Classic. <laughs> Classic. Um, open that door over there, and and it just opens up even if it was locked. Well, I, but I like you you know, first of all, you hear a. Yeah, I guess so. I wanted to see if that would come through on the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> we'll fi- I'll find out later when I'm editing. <laughs> hey, future me. <laughs> Now, when you're editing this, you have to say, hey, past me. I will. Oh, I'll smile and I'll go, hi. This this is such a fun spell. Actually, uh, actually, probably the only one of the only things that I don't like about this spell is it's a second level spell. Yeah. Why? 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 It takes so long to get this spell. You should have this as a freaking cantrip. This is a cantrip. I get that. Like, I mean, maybe it shouldn't be a cantrip because you could just like point at everything and unlock I guess, everything. I, I, guess I, so. I guess so. If the whole thing is like you should can only unlock some one limitations. of these. Maybe yeah. a first level spell. Maybe, a, but but it should totally be like a first level spell. I feel like this is at the, you know, not any more powerful than um, any of the cantrip spells that can like open and close windows um, or or like light, you know, a candle or something like that. Most of the time, knock is going to be pretty much the same level of power. But if the window is locked, you have to knock on it before you can open it. It's true. <laughs> I I like this spell a lot, um, obviously as a usefulness factor, being able to point at the chest from far away that you think may be trapped and open it oh, from yeah. far away is a Remember, real useful aspect. We had that question um, a bit ago about the, the person who was eldritch blasting. Mimics. Yeah. yeah, and they were super worried about mimics. There you go. Wizard can knock from yeah. far away. Which would be pretty fun, and then the mimic can come to life and chase after you, and like an episode of Scooby Doo. Yes, but you're far away. You are. You got. You got a head start. You got a range of sixty feet, and I did not realize that the knock, the knock could be heard as far away as three hundred feet if the DM allows it. Yeah, like, that's pretty interesting. That you could be like, oh yeah, you're gonna be able to open that door, but you hear this loud boom, and suddenly, like the knock is itself. Is it was like a loud. boom, boom, yeah, yeah. I think I think that's really fun, and it also precludes like you can't sneak into this room mm-hmm. um, very easily. Everybody's gonna hear it, which is which is also a fun thing to have to then work around. What would an anti knock be? Silence. What? <laughs> but silence doesn't lock things. Well, silence would prevent you from doing the verbal component of the spell. Okay, but okay, so that would be essentially like a counter spell to your knock, right? Yeah. But I'm I'm thinking like, is there a lock spell? Um, there is magic 
magic lock. Okay, so knock magic lock. There is arcane lock, which is a second level spell. Oh, there you go. Now, could that could arcane lock do damage on you if you have handcuffs on and someone locks it so hard? Um, no. Although that is another spell. <laughs> oh my gosh, arcane handcuffs. Um, <laughs> it is a it is a glyph spell called glyph of warding, which is a third level spell. Um, which can do things like when you it's a it's a special symbol that if you see it, um, it suddenly blows up. Oh, ow! Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> um, interestingly, um, very, very specifically, the spell Arcane Lock actually says if you use the spell Knock, it suppresses Arcane Lock for 10 minutes. Oh, nice. So Knock beats Lock. <laughs> knock beats Lock. <laughs> We're starting a Seuss book right now. Yeah. Um, well, there you go. Three spells for the price of one. Yeah, I actually feel like those would be really fun spells that could all be the same spell. Oh yeah, like you kind of like have have all three of those in your back yeah, pocket, maybe you just pick which one you're going to use. Yeah. Um uh that'd be that'd be pretty fun. These these fall into spells that I think are really really fun utility spells that I wish there was a better ritual casting um component to. Like it's pretty rare that I would ever in the middle of combat need to use knock. Maybe I, you know, I'm manacled or or something like that. I'm tied up. Um, in those specific circumstances, maybe it would be great to have the spell knock prepared as a as a prepared spell. But I think a uh, ritual casting system that wasn't quite as punishing, that didn't take me 20 minutes to cast um, the spell arcane lock or knock, um, because they're second level spells, and, and that's how sort of ritual casting works. But if it just took one minute to cast this as a, as a ritual, Knock would be a way more useful and interesting spell to have in, say, a spell book. Um, talking about like a wizard with with interesting, useful spells in their spell book, to to say, oh, I can pull, I can knock that door open, but it's going to create a loud noise. But that way, it doesn't have to cost me a spell slot, and I don't have to have prepared it ahead of time for my very limited number of possible prepared spells, taking up a spot of something that is far more likely to actually come up and occur um, in a campaign. So I like I like this kind of spell for being able to give some looser rules around ritual casting or something along those lines where now having this spell means a lot more. Same with Arcane Lock. I don't have to prepare it. I'm, I'm going to ritual cast it, and that takes a couple of minutes or something along those lines, but now um, I can easily do that out of combat. It's just in combat that that um, I might go, oh, I wish I had prepared knock. Mm. Absolutely. Anyway, cool spell. Cool spell. Classic spell. Classic. It's from our D&D Classics edition. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for, thanks for um, being on the podcast with us. Nope. Nope. <laughs> what have we been saying? Thank you. You wasted, wasted another, another hour. hour. <laughs> but we wasted another 45 minutes. There you go. Hey, um, I hope you were productive for these 45 minutes. Yeah, I hope you got some real work done on your stationary bike. Dishes. You got or some di- <laughs> those dishes done. Hey, nice job. Laundry or way, to, way to help out the household. Maybe you're working. You made it a little further on your commute. Maybe you're working late at night by yourself and you just wanted some friends in your ears. Yeah. Hey, we're here, here we for are. you. We're, we're your friends. You're your friends. 
<laughs> I don't know why, but I immediately gross. went to Babblefish from... Yeah, uh, we're your Babblefish. Ooh. Yeah, there you go. Well, you know what? If we are your Babblefish, we are your translation into the world of role-playing games. So, come and submit your questions for the for your, for your curiosity about the world of role-playing games or your next session that you are planning for your game. Ah, there it is. By coming to our website at nextsessionpodcast.com and submitting your question or piece of feedback. We are also on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Session and on Instagram at Next Session Podcast. Also, don't forget that when you submit a question to the podcast, if we answer it on air, we will also send you a free sticker. Yes, but you have to give me an address to yeah. send the sticker to. We will send you a message saying, what is your address so that we can send you a free sticker? <laughs> yes, that would be lovely. Um, but you you can be the gel- the the... Um, center of jealousy of all your friends with your free sticker that you got because you submitted the question. And if you want to know what the sticker looks like, it's our logo. Yeah. Logo sticker. There you go. So, I'm Adam Johns. And I'm Alyssa Johns. Tune in next time and we'll help you prep for your next session. Goodbye. Goodbye.